Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Each episode will feature a new guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Ryan Holiday on the show. I'm really excited to have Ryan on. He's an author, writer, and marketer. He's the former director of marketing for American Apparel and an editor at large for the New York Observer. His latest book is The Obstacle is the Way. Thanks, Ryan, for uh, being on here. It's very good to be here. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, it's really good to talk to you. And there's, uh, in preparing for this interview, there's so many uh, different threads. You know, I feel like we could like chat for days, um, but. We don't have dates, so okay. I'll try to try to focus us a, a little bit. Do you mind if we um, trace a little bit of your background? Because I found that particularly interesting. And uh, from sure. a personal perspective, um, I'm really interested in people who take alternative pathways to get to uh, greatness or get to uh, success. So, okay. I noticed that um, it said on your Wikipedia page that you dropped out of college at age 19. Is yeah. that correct? Because not everything is, you know, necessarily correct that you read on Wikipedia. So Yes. Yeah. Well, so I dropped out. Uh, ironically, so I left school when I was 19, right, as the end of the year. And then I moved in with, with Tucker Max, who I think you've had on the show before, right? Uh, I've been on his show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so he was, uh, he was someone that I met in college. I interviewed him, and I sort of became his intern when he was first publishing his books, and he had a media company at the time. And so I moved in with him. I We, we lived in L.A., and I, I had a job at a talent management agency, like a, a summer job. And sort of at the end of it, they were like, what if you never went back? Um, and so I, I never did. I never went back to school. And it's 19, but I turned like 20 like the next day. But, yes, yeah, so I had dropped out of school uh, the end of my sophomore year. So this is really interesting because you obviously had like the seeds of or the passion for journalism because yeah. I read somewhere that you were invited to a small private summit 
um, that Dr. Drew was hosting, right? So that yeah, would have yeah. been freshman year then, right? Yeah, that would have been my freshman freshman year or very beginning of my sophomore year. I don't remember. But yeah, it was, it was basically I, I really liked writing. That was like my sort of passion. But I also saw working for this newspaper as this chance to like meet people that I wouldn't be able to meet like as me. But as a journalist, quote unquote, you can like interview anyone, right? Yeah. So I met Tucker by interviewing him. I met Dr. Drew who ended up introducing me to Stoicism, which changed my life uh, because I because I was covering him for this newspaper. And so it, it was this like little hustle, I guess, that I had on the side that one was my passion for writing and made me a much better writer. But it, it opened a bunch of doors as a student journalist that would have never been open to me like just as a random person or or as like a you know a college dropout. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's like you made this 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 concerted decision at one point where you know like I don't need this formal education to realize this vision I have in my head. Did it sort of go that way? Like kind of. So like I I had like a love hate relationship with school. Like I had all these dreams for like what college was going to be like. Like it was this place where everyone loved books and I would talk to all these smart people and it would be amazing. And it was sort of like that. And then it was also not like that. And so when this opportunity came to sort of, I remember thinking when I got the job offer, cause I got the job offer to stay at the management firm. And then Robert Greene, who'd been another person that I met, uh, was looking for a research assistant. And these sort of two things happened at the same time. I remember thinking, okay, I, I'm, I was going to graduate early. I've got like a year, year and a half left of school. And if at the end of that time, these offers were there for me, I would think that college had been a huge success and I would be very grateful for these jobs. Mm -hmm. So why would I turn my, my justification was why would I turn them down if I have them right now? Why wouldn't I jump on them? And I did. It, it was still a very difficult decision, a very scary one, yeah. but I felt like I could learn more out of school than in school. No, absolutely. And you must have learned quite a bit working with Tucker Max and Robert Greene. I mean, both of them have pretty good uh, – I mean, both of them have different personalities. I've hung out with both of them and they, yeah. have, they have different personalities, but I admire uh, various characteristics that both of them have. Um, yeah. yeah. It was sort of this thing where I could – I had – instead of having like one mentor, I had like – three or four, and I was able to like take the pieces that the strongest parts of each of them, and they were each sort of directing me to read things and showing me things and introducing me to things. So it was this period of, of probably like three solid years where I was just, it was like a different kind of education, but an yeah. equally rigorous one. Absolutely. And so when did you make contact with American Apparel? So Robert Green is on the was on the board of directors for American Apparel. So I I've been working for Robert for two or two years or so. My thing in Hollywood was was going okay, and uh, he introduced me to Dub because he was having some sort of problem with his like internet. Sort his his online persona was not what he needed it to be. And I came in, we met, and it's sort of uh, another friendship, you know, uh, came about. And I ended up joining there with no real title or position or job and then a few years later I ended up becoming the director of marketing. Wow. So so much of your marketing advice that you gave them and your is was based it seems like you have some sort of intuition for a lot of this stuff. I mean you didn't have formal training, right? Well I didn't have formal training, but I, I think what I was really one, I, I read a lot and I, I learned a lot, but I think what was crazy is that I I would like learn something from Tucker and then I would apply it to Robert and then I would learn something from Robert and I would apply it to Tucker yeah. and then I would learn something from each of them and apply it to American Apparel. And I think they both all thought that I was like 
just bringing this to the table myself, but it was real. like, if I'd only done one of them at one time, I don't think it would have been nearly as rapid of a, a sort of rise through the ranks. It was these, it was the convergence of very different schools of thinking and then my own sort of rigorous like learning and, and trial and error kind of stuff that, yep. that made it possible. So I'm trying to I'm trying to fit you within the positive psychology framework because are you okay. familiar with like the the character strengths? There's 24 character strengths in no. the study. Um, th- yeah, so like um, uh, Martin Seligman and uh, Chris Peterson set out this big project to create the antithesis to the DSM. So instead okay. of like you know what's wrong with people, sure. let's, let's look at the history of the last three thousand years and look at they looked at two hundred of the greatest texts from you know ancient Greek and to the Stoicism, which we're going to talk about sure. later, et cetera, et cetera. And they narrowed it down to six virtues and then 24 character strengths. And I'm just in my head, I think I'll, I'll give you the, you know, what? I'll give you the test later. You can take your, you can find out what your signature strengths are. I would love are. that. That sounds yeah. awesome. Yeah. And maybe I'll put on the show notes your results. Sure. Your test results. But um, I'm just one predicting. I don't want okay. to buy Is this going to bias you now? No. You'll be no, 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 no. Yeah. So, but I, I feel like love of learning is probably one of your signature strengths, is what I'm feeling. Sure. Um, perseverance um, is definitely one of them. Um, what do you think, Taylor? Um, creativity is probably curiosity, right creativity, yeah. curiosity, curiosity. Um, so yeah, the, these sorts of things I, I I predict, but you know we'll see, we'll see. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. No. It was it was it was a hell of an experience. I'm obviously very grateful to all of them. And I it was I think for me like the big thing was like how do I not blow this? Like that's what I was like thinking all the time, right? Like yeah. like because like I could see how like you know living on Tucker Max's floor there are certain temptations there. And like working for Robert Greene, there's certain temptations. Working for an American Apparel, there's certain temptations. To say nothing of like the stress and, you know, high stakes. of Like it could have gone the other way. I, I feel like I got very lucky, but it was also like, yeah, just how do I not, I this is all very lucky, how do I not blow it? Yeah, no, I hear you. Um, do you, but you have a, a great sense of confidence now from, from many years of this kind of experience. I mean, do you still have that attitude when you to try to not blow it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's like, I'm, I'm sort of, I think the confidence maybe now comes from like feeling like I'm playing with house money. Like, like I'm, I'm very ahead of the game. So like in some ways that makes me both confident and a little bit conservative. Yeah. Um, but, but then and now I, I try very much to see like, Maybe this is from the stoicism part. I try to see like where it could go wrong and what I could do to and and how could how someone could mess it up and then I try not to do that thing. Yep, that's great. And that actually um, you talk a lot about about that strategy in your new book. Before we get to your new book, your prior book on confessions of a. Uh, uh, so the, in the subtitle, there's the phrase media manipulator, right? Yeah, confessions of a media manipulator. Yeah, that's what I wanted the title to be, but. <laughs> it's so funny because I can't actually remember. Was I'm lying? Or what's the, what's, Trust me, I'm lying. Isn't that funny? I actually remember your subtitle, but <laughs> yeah. Well, that was my argument with the publisher. But they won. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I, so I really like um, your subtitle, and, uh, <laughs> and I like the title too. But um, obviously, it wasn't as easy for me to remember. Um, but yeah, the, so it's it's a really good book, and you bring a lot of your personal experiences um, in in the industry or whatever. I don't know what the word is for what what you experienced. Um, sure. The the media world or the world yeah. of, um, of uh, lots of smokes and mirrors, right? Yeah. Um, do you – so why, how did you like choose the phrase media manipulator? Because that could have like a negative connotation to some people. Yeah, sure. Um, so one of the books I'd, I'd read uh, when I was starting at American Prepare was this book called The Brass Check by Upton Sinclair. He wrote this sort of like 
expose in the first person of, of how the media system worked. It was, it was right, he wrote it right after The Jungle. And um, I remember reading it and thinking like, man, this is like very true to what I was experiencing at American Apparel, seeing Tucker's somewhat controversial reputation. And so I wanted to write a similar book because I've, I've been searching around for like a book that explained how the media system was working as someone who, who both was a writer and someone who'd, who'd worked with people who are in the public eye, and I didn't see one. Um, but I felt like when I was doing my research, I saw that like nobody reads books about the media that are not in the media. So if I wanted to reach a wider audience, which I did, I, I felt like I had to sort of go with that angle. So it was about sort of packaging what I wanted to be really, like my dream was to write it like an academic book of media criticism, but I realized that that would get a very small market. And so it was like, how can I, how can I position this in such a way? And it's funny, I think when you and I first met, I was, it was at a dinner with Neil Strauss and I was asking him like a lot of these questions. Like, you were, cause you I know, I know he'd gone through it with his books. Cause like when you know Neil, he's like the smartest, most like literary person you would ever meet, which is not what you would expect at all. And yet he's built this massive brand that, that is true to him and it's true to parts of him, but there's also like this other side. And so that was definitely something I struggled with and thought a lot Ooh, with the book. I really like that. So this other side, like, let's just talk about that for a second. Yeah. Um, I'm just totally fascinated with this whole thing. So there, I'm fascinated with like being, uh, you're like living your authentic self, right? Sure. Like, and I, I do think in a lot of ways, I mean, you'll always, um, as all of us, you know, we, it's a journey to actually figure out what the hell that is. So sure. I think something that's a great strength of a lot of his writings is, is that he like is so honest about his journey to figure that out, you know? Sure. And I he know he has a new book coming out, right? Like, uh, yeah. In a couple. So the authentic self thing, but you know, part of, you can live your authentic self, but also it, it, you can live your authentic self and no one ever know it because you don't ever like, um, broadcast sure. it. Right. So yeah. Could, so it seems like there is this part that that is important that you that you talk about. I don't know if it's manipulation or it's amplification, amplification, right? But it's yeah. it's, it's it's taking these best strengths of of what you're proud of and figuring out a way to actually like make that known to lots of people. Yeah, I mean, so the the book it's like on the one hand I'm talking about how appalling like the way that media can be manipulated is, and at the same time I'm saying like I did all this, right? Yeah. And and I and I figured it out and I benefited from it. And it's at first it was like, are these, is this hypocrisy? Are these two separate parts of myself? Am I being dishonest? And then I, when I started to realize, someone gave me the word and I, I talk about it in the intro. It's like I, I had two parts of myself and I believed in both of them, but they were not integrated in any way. So it was like I could like manipulate the media and show how something could work to like benefit a client that I believed in. And then on the other hand, I felt like this was not how the media system should be. And so, and, and that it was bad generally, even though I was taking advantage of it, I'd rather not be able to take advantage of it and it not exist. So the book was like kind of an integration of those two selves. And that's what I think Neil does really well is like his books are like a journey that he goes on that the reader comes along with. Yeah, and I, yeah. I hope my book kind of accomplished that, which is like, here's what I learned, here's what I realized, I'm moving on now, but this book is sort of a testament to how things were in a period in my life. Yeah, I think it does. And I think that, uh, I think it's a really good way to live your life. Um, you know, the authentic self is not shying away from the, like, the perhaps darker aspects of yourself, but quite you know, embracing all the aspects. I and mean, it's a big, uh, big common theme in, uh, in positive psychology right now. I'm just looking at my bookshelf for a new book by Todd Cashton on, uh, 
embracing uh, both the good and the bad of the self. But anyway. What's it called? Um, what's the title? The Upside yeah. of Your Dark Side. The Upside side. of Your Dark Side. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a great, it's a really great book um, by Tad Kasten and I'm writing Robert, Robert Biswas-Diener, who are two leaders in, in our field. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they're great guys. Um, so let's talk about your new book then, uh, okay. because I I teach positive psychology here at Penn, and uh, my first class I go through a history, I trace the history of uh, of ideas of the good life, and sure. we of course I cover stoicism, um, and your book did a great service in in bringing this to a more wider audience and uh, making it very easily digestible and accessible. Um, how can you? In fact, I think I'm going to have my next uh, cohort of students listen to your podcast as no. a as a homework assignment, so you That's can awesome. put that on your CV. <laughs> you, pen, right. you pen, you know. I, <laughs> but uh, but I think I will though. I think uh, so. Um, so um, can you just d- define stoicism then? How you see? Well, how do you see as the essential? Um, really getting at the core of what they were uh, all about. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. Like what I, the stoicism that I talk about in the book, and then stoicism in general are similar, although not totally aligned. My sort of personal definition of stoicism is. Uh, we live in a world that we don't control. Stoicism is uh, a set of exercises and philosophy, practical philosophy for how to navigate that world, right? Um, and, and I like that it was, it was a manual for not just like thinkers, but also doers, right? So the most prominent Stoics, you have Marcus Aurelius on the one hand, you have Epictetus, who's the emperor of Rome, you have Epictetus, who's a, a former slave, you have Seneca, who I think is a we're talking about sort of the darker and lighter sides of your nature. You have Seneca, who on the one hand is this brilliant playwright and philosopher, and on the other hand is the personal tutor and friend of Nero, like, and this sort of backstabbing political conniver. So there's this, like, he's this disintegrated person, but also integrated in his writing. And I like that Stoicism is this sort of struggle both with and against human nature, right? Mm. Um, and, and so, so for me, like my favorite Stoic line is the idea of like, there is no good or bad. There's only perception. Right. And, and so Mm -hmm. to me, the way I see Stoicism is, um, a framework for managing those perceptions, for taking advantage of them. And again, for making sense of the, the parts of life that we don't control. I don't, I don't agree with all the tenets. Like I don't believe in like predetermination. I don't believe in like persecuting Christians, let's say, or any of the other yeah. stuff. But yeah. I think we, I think we can take what we like from the Stoics, balance it out with other philosophers, and then most importantly, balance it out with the sort of modern, you know, innovations in psychology and biology. And and it, I think it gives us a pretty good framework for life in a sort of post-religious world. It absolutely does. I mean, I, I was very excited reading your book and you talk about post-traumatic growth, you know, which yeah. is a very emerging field within positive psychology. So I was like, yeah, rock on. Um, and uh, yeah, lots of things you talk about are grounded in the latest science of um, resiliency and um, grit. You know, uh, Andrew yep. Duckworth does grit uh, literally right next door <laughs> to me. Really? Right, yeah, literally like right there. Is, That's is, awesome. Is their whole, their whole full wing line uh, floor is the grit, the grit floor. I'm the imagination creativity floor. Okay. And they're the grit floor. So it's, <laughs> actually, I should say imagination Creativity and World Wellbeing Project is at the end. Do you know what the World Wellbeing, Wellbeing, Wellbeing Project is doing down no. there? So they actually have um, – they're being able to pre- predict heart disease and how long you're going to live and mortality based on your tweets. So really? it's, it's big data. Yeah, they're looking at like 
like hundreds of thousands of tweets and being able to predict at a county-wide level, like like whether or not that county is has high degrees of, and they're predicting it better though than like traditional markers of heart disease. Yeah. Do you know um, Do you know Seth Kambar? He's at MIT Media Lab. He wrote that book. Uh, he did that project, We Feel Fine, where it took like huge amounts of big data. He was like one of the first people to do this, but he took huge amounts of like. Google blog searches and social media searches where people would like say what they're feeling and why. Yeah. And and he was like he was I remember talking to him about it and I, he was like the irony is like when you look at all these like modern sort of psychological tools that we're doing with big data all it basically does is prove ancient philosophy. Uh, which I thought was very cool. Like he was saying like like for instance like young people associate happiness with like accomplishment, right? Like yeah. achieve like I feel good because I like found right. you know a new job or I feel good because like I got a new car or something like that. And then he's like as you get older increasingly you feel happiness around contentment. Yeah, and he yeah. was like, you know, these are like timeless ideas yeah. that were that were just sort of like hypotheses before or at best they were proven in like a study of 72 male college students being forced to apply, being forced to do it for psychology credit mm. or and he's like, now finally we can see it like, you know, across 35 million tweets or something like that. I thought it was very cool. Very cool. And you just made me think of uh, something in your book. You, you say that uh, action and philosophy are not contradictions. And yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't think they are. I think, I think certainly uh, academic philosophy or like what most people assume is philosophy seems very at odds mm -hmm. with uh, philosophy. But like one of the most prominent Stokes is, is Cato – you know, the sort of mortal enemy of, of Julius Caesar, yeah. and he never wrote anything down. Like the Stoics talk about him constantly as if he as if he said this, you know, in a book, but really he said it in real life. Like Stoicism or, or Stockdale, like James Stockdale, when he's parachuting into, in, into Vietnam out of his plane, he's like saying to himself, like, I'm going to be testing the ideas of Stoicism in the laboratory of human experience. Like Stoicism is, is not like this idle sort of philosophy about how life might be. It was like tested by some of the most prominent or, or you know, important people in history. I think that's, that's like totally fascinating. Yeah. So you talk about in your book about things that uh, all great men and women of history seem to have in common. Yeah. What 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 is that? I mean, I know what it is, but I want you to. I want my. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what what I'm saying in the book is that everyone faces adversity, right? Yeah. Good and uh, like we don't choose whether we're going to face lots of adversity or a little bit of adversity. But like, I think when you look at great men and women in history, what they've done is instead of being sort of stymied by that adversity, they somehow turned it into a source of advantage, right? Mm -hmm. Which is what you have to do as an entrepreneur, as a writer, as a as a leader. You have to take you you have to take the things that happen to you. And you have to take advantage of them. Yet, like as Obama says, like things are teachable moments, right? As a politician, you don't get to choose that this story breaks or that story breaks or this world event happens or you know this current event occurs. What you can do is make the most of it, right? You can decide how you're going to respond to that thing, and that's a. I think that's a very philosophical idea. On the one hand, it's it's sort of heady and and intellectual to think like, oh yeah, like. What happened is outside me, but what what I, how I respond is within me. But it's also like a very pragmatic, realistic idea. And that that's something that I try to apply, obviously, in my real life. Can I get like really nerdy for a second? Let's do it. 
Like, I mean, I uh, my my background. I went to Carnegie Mellon, and I was Herb Simon's last research assistant. Um, okay. You, you know who Herb Simon is? He no. I mean, he basically was the the one of the founders of artificial intelligence. He won a Nobel Prize in economics for satisficing. Have you heard, you've heard of satisficing? I uh, think so. We it's better for us to decide what's good enough than yeah. than being optimizers. Sure. Um, so he um, talks about lots of his famous seminal like 1971 book was like uh, general problem solving strategies. Okay. And um, with Alan Newell, and um, this book outlines various heuristics that you uh, the humans use to solve problems. But in in there, there is no heuristic. Like I feel like we should invent a heuristic right now. Like okay. there is no. It just dawned on me. Like the means end analysis is one of the most popular heuristics that's talked about in the literature. And means end analysis is when you try to do whatever you can do to reduce the discrepancy between your starting state and your goal state. But okay. there's nothing in means end analysis about the obstacle. And, you know, it's almost like treated as though, like, you know, um, you, everything you need to do is to reduce the state. But um, if an optic comes, like, there's no explanation of, like, what to do there really necessarily. Sure. Uh, like, maybe – I feel like there needs to be, like, a heuristic. Like, literally the heuristic is whenever I face an obstacle, I turn it into an advantage. Like, like that, could yeah. be a, that could be, like, a human like, a heuristic in the literature on heuristics. Do you know what I mean? Totally. I mean, what the Stoics say is that like everything that happens to you is, a, is an opportunity to practice virtue. Yeah. And like that, like when I say that, like when I give talks or when I write, like I know it, like I can see people like instantly become resistant. Like the idea of like virtue as like being a modern idea is like very, it's almost like repellent to people for some reason. Like it sounds very moralistic, but like what they're saying is like, it's a chance to do something that you weren't planning, but is also good, right? Like we're, we're having this talk and like, you know, maybe like my computer starts sucking, I could get angry about it or I could say like, okay, this is a chance to like practice patience, right? Or like all of a sudden, like you're like a really hostile interviewer and you're like trying to like, you know, you're you're, like trying to like get me, right? I could get frustrated and I could shut down or I could say like, this is a chance for me to practice and get better or like this is a chance for me to be like gracious or 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 pleasant despite like a a rude encounter, right? Like, I I hope I'm not being an asshole by the way. No, no, not at all. Okay, okay, not at all. But, but like, if you were, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, if you were, that's not like what the Stoics would say is like that's not only is that not in my control, it's not my problem, right? Like, I don't control. People are gonna be rude. People are gonna be assholes. Like, you don't control that, and you're gonna you're gonna give yourself an aneurysm if you try to like force everyone to be good all the time. Yeah. Instead, you should just try to be good. And you should try this. I think this is a ben, another part of socialism. It's like you should try to be an example. And of course, all this is easier said than done. But I think it's like a framework that certainly there's no harm in trying to apply as often as possible. I think there's a great misconception about stoicism that it means that you don't have emotions. Or sure. You're, and, and it's also a common misconception about mindfulness, which is, I think is associated with Stoicism. And it's kind of the, the modern movement of, of detachment from your thoughts in a sense that you get perspective, right? You kind of yeah. look down on it from like a bird's eye view and decide how you want to do it. But I don't think that um, Stoics would have said that passion is, not, is, 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 is bad. Am I right? No. I think the Sto- it's ironic because the Stoics talk about passions, mm-hmm. like the, the Greek word for like like sort of emotions, right, as being – not emotions, but like extreme emotions as being bad, like sort of being ruled by your passions. It's Temperance not good. Temperance was very important to them, yeah. Yeah, but like passion for what you do or for good things or for purpose like is, is obviously part of Stoicism and it's proven by the fact that, you know, Marcus Aurelius didn't, didn't – 
he accepted being emperor, right? He wasn't actually born to be the, the emperor of Rome. He was he was adopted into it. He could have rejected it at any moment, right? Yeah. Or he could have he could have retreated from it, but he didn't. And and I think you see that in a lot of the people who adhered to Stoicism, who were also sort of accomplished people in whatever their field was. Like you've written a lot, and, and you and I have talked about like Viktor Frankl, mm. who's who was influenced by Stoicism. Yeah. Um, and, and experienced it and tested it in probably the, the worst man-made environment in history. And, and, and in one way, it got him through what he went through, but it also was like he saw it as this like chance to, to take his work to like the highest level that it could go. And like, and, 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 was a prodigious producer of, of writing and thinking both before and after. And like, I, I, I don't think you see Stoics as being these people who like remove, they're not the cynics, right. Who like remove themselves from the world and, right. and take vows of poverty and, 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 and negativity. It's, it's just a way to protect yourself and balance out the uncertainties of the world. I would say. Yep. I agree. And also you talk in your book about how, also reduce the fluctuations of emotions so that it's not yeah. this constant you know um, up and down up and down I mean I think a lot of the ancient Greeks and I mean some of the greatest thinkers of all time have talked about the importance of timeless values or yeah and I actually I really like that because you do notice that you know, no matter what it is in the moment when you get a greater perspective no matter what it is once you get greater perspective you know that it's it's it, the, the emotions not gonna have the same intensity yeah, there, there's this one, um, there's this one play that I, I, I'm, is it by Lucian or Lucius? I forget. I think it's Lucian. He's, he's talking about, it's this like poem and he, he's getting, he's getting wings and he flies above the earth. And as he's flying above the earth, he's seeing all the things that he thought were important get smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. So it's like, first, like people are getting smaller then like warring armies are are look start to look like ants and like giant mountains start to look like molehills and like as he's getting further and further away he's seeing just like how small human existence is and how how massive the the uh, how massive things uh, appear small from a different perspective yep. and like i don't think the stoics are saying like you know these things are small and tiny i think what they're it, people forget that stoicism is a set of exercises, right? Like Mark Cerritos didn't write a book of philosophy. He wrote a series of exercises that were meant for his private use to like remind him of stuff. So like, that's where I think the connection to like cognitive behavioral therapy and some of the stuff that you do comes in is like, stoicism is just like aphorisms and reminders of how to think about things. They're not like commandments or rules. They're like, um, like sort of mental puzzles. And I think that's what philosophy does really well. It makes you just think about something in a different capacity. It's not like, uh, you know, uh, a religious tenet that if you violate, you are sinful and then are going to hell. Like he, I, the way I think about it is like when the Stoics say something and then when the Stoics are saying something, they're saying it primarily as a admonishment or reminder to themselves for having recently done the opposite of that thing rather than like preaching to you that you need to be like them. Agree with that. No, I definitely agree with that. No. Cool. I'm definitely going to sign this as a homework assignment. All right. <laughs> this is good. Um, so I noticed some. Uh, I don't know if they're direct influences of Robert Greens or just uh, happen to be similar viewpoints. But I noticed a couple of the things that are in common. 
Okay. Uh, so let me mention one. You're, uh, you're, you discuss the importance of reality. This is yeah. something I, I pointed out to Robert when I when he was on the podcast. How I noticed he's I would almost say obsessed with reality. <laughs> I mean, like just like he over in all of his books. Yeah. Like if you read all of his books and you just like sit down like in in three day in like a week and just read all his books from start to finish, you'll notice that like he used the word reality more than any other word. Yeah. Um, it's something I've noticed. Like I don't know. Um, and I have the greatest respect for him. But I, I and I but I think there's a reason for that. Um, is because he obviously thinks it's very important. To sure. see things for how they are, not for our own biases and our own um, emotions or perspectives or background experiences or quirky experience, you know, quirky experiences we have sure. that color um, work. And so I, th- I see that as, as another as important in your book as well um, when you talk about how perspective is everything. Um, so were you influenced a little bit by Robert on that? Totally. I mean, like I, Robert sort of taught me in terms of writing and thinking. Like Robert has been the primary influence in my sort of intellectual life. Awesome. And it was funny, I was just going through a bunch of quotes from Robert on reality for this like project right. I'm working now. He has this great line, he's like, you have to take you have to take to reality like a spider takes to its web, which I think is like a really good line. Um, and I think I think it's important for two reasons and, and maybe I'm uh, speaking for Robert a little bit, but it's one, it's that if you're not looking at things objectively, I think the human mind and our society sort of gravitates you towards certain fantasies and certain like generous accounts of your own talents, skills and place in the world. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to do something or build something like, you know, an architect doesn't look at a plan and then base it on how they'd like gravity to be or how they'd like the lot size to be or they'd like their budget to be. It has to be based in objective fact. And of course, that's not totally possible for like a human being judging, you know, other human beings and what you're doing. But like the the more you can strip out your own, uh, I would say, unhelpful interpretations of things, the easier it is to do whatever you're trying to do. And I think the Stoics do that too. Like, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and Epictetus are constantly talking about, um, you know, seeing what things really are. Like Marcus Aurelius is like, he's like, look, like you wear the purple cape, which is what the emperor wears. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's just, it's the same as the regular cape. It's just dyed with shellfish blood, which is how they would get the color purple then. He's like, it's the same cape. It's just dyed a different color. And he's talking both literally and and metaphorically, he's like, you're not different than anyone else. Like, you're still a human being. You're still bound by – like, I can only imagine, like, if you're deified as a god in your own lifetime, how hard must it be yeah. to, like, stay connected to reality? And you see what happens to people in power. Yeah, I could tell you firsthand, you know, just yeah. how hard that is. Sure, sure. <laughs> I'm just I'm messing. <laughs> um yeah, no, and so I really like that emphasis, and and also you know on social intelligence, when Robert in his new book Mastery talks about the social intelligence, he kind of views it as you know seeing within or, or just seeing the person for what they are, and yeah. um, and I and I think that you um, you have that perspective as well, kind of removing the you. I think you talk about in your book. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I think you put it that way. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think be, I put it that well. To be fair to you. <laughs> to be fair to you. Yeah. Um, so how does – you talk about some great examples of, 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 of modern-day people who have really incorporated stoicism to their life. One example, Steve Jobs. How does Steve Jobs exemplify stoicism do you think? Well, so ironically, Steve Jobs probably had no interest in stoicism and probably found himself more on the sort of Buddhist Zen end of the spectrum. But what I liked – I like and dislike his idea of what 
like critics would call his like sort of reality distortion field. Yeah. He would take like what other people said. Like he has this great line where he's like, at some point you realize that all the rules in life or in the world were just like made up by people who are like no smarter than you. And like, I think what he was grasping is like so much of what people say is like possible or not possible is, is, is either based out of fear or it's based out of like sort of conservative assumptions. Yeah. And Steve Jobs was like really good at just blowing past that. I mean, part of the reason he bounced out of Apple originally was like his vision for Apple, what it became seemed like so unrealistic and everyone was so, everyone was so aghast at what he wanted things to become that they didn't bother to think about whether it actually was possible or not. And he was, he was just very insistent on, so on the one hand, reality is, po- is important. On the other hand, it, it's not, it's not to say you have to assume other people's pessimistic version of what reality is. If I was going to try to connect those two thoughts. Well, let's bring in my, my favorite word, imagination. Yeah. Um, what, what, let's toggle between the two reality and the importance of like both. Yeah. Um, so can you like be discontent with re- reality? And as, so I think one of the greatest motivators of imagination is discontent with reality. I often say that. Yeah. Um, so that at the same time, you can still have a great deep appreciation for reality, but then have a just terrific imagination and vision of what reality could be. And, sure. and that's easily reconcilable, right? Yeah. yeah. And I don't think it's just imagination. It's like I, one of the great sort of social and political organizers, Saul Alinsky, who is, who influenced both Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, he, he has this famous line. He's like, if an organizer uh, wants to do something, it's like, you have to accept the world as it is for what it is if you want to change it. Yeah. I think part of people think like their imagination is important and it is, that's like where you want to go. But if you don't understand where things are and why they are the way that they are, um, you're not going to get there. Like there's plenty of, there's plenty of other people who had equally crazy ideas as, as Steve Jobs did. But what Steve Jobs is really good at is understanding how to get from point A to point B and pushing past the, the, the petty sort of resistance that, that held, holds other people back from getting there. Right. I can't get over this juxtaposition of having this really high-level, abstract, wonderful discussion with, with roosters in the background walking by with their oh, heads. Oh, do you see them? It's incredible. This wait, juxt- wait, wait, wait. Let yeah. me see. My, my, I have two goats, and they're jumping around in the back there, too. Do you live on a farm? No. This is just my back. That's my back fence. Like, I have a very small backyard, but I have, I have two chickens and two goats. I completely agree with what you're saying, and I, I think that's why I try to be as ruthless as I can in my science you know, right. and take everything else out. But then once I have the data in front of me, then I like to imagine what the data could look like if you did X, Y, Z interventions. But that first step of ruthless science, you know, I think is, is important. And by, by science, you know, you would just phrase it as, you know, like reality, you know? Yeah. And I think people, people think that being that way is somehow like, is somehow bad. But I, in fact, I think if you're not realistic and you don't have a, a real understanding of why things are the way they are, you're doing your like dream or your imagination like a disservice. Like, like when I sat down to write a book about stoicism, something I was deeply passionate about, something I want people to learn about. But I also sat down and looked at all the other books that were published and I said, okay, why did they fail? Like what was wrong with them? How, like, I looked at William Irvine's book, who was, he was an academic who wrote a book about stoicism, and it's done okay, but like, I was like, what's wrong with it? Why, 
why is, and I, I figured out what I did, didn't like about it. I thought about what I could contribute that was new and different. And like, it, it's, it's not just about having a good idea or having something that you're passionate about. I think generally passion is very, passion is much more overrated than like purpose, which I think is very important. Mm. And I, I think those are two very different ideas. Um, someone who has purpose is going to understand and be willing to sort of, in a Machiavellian sense, like let the let the ends justify the means, right? Because they know what the mean, the ends are and they know what they need to do there. Someone who's passionate thinks that just like emoting or caring about or spending a lot of energy on something is is a contribution. And I would say that it's really not. So I agree. And I think a lot of it depends how you define passion. So sure. I'm uh, a big fan of this uh, construct in my field called harmonious passion where it's not about emotional valence. It's about how do you integrate an activity into the core of your identity. So, okay. So I think harmonious passion is, is extremely important, but it's not the stereotypical type of you know passion that you're, you're referring to, and I would agree with you. Um, so, it's, so the difference between interest and harmonious passion is like an interest is, yeah, I really like basketball, but like harmonious passion is I am a basketball player. And it, se- it seems like, yeah, it seems like if you um, integrate, you know, the world into yourself in the sense that you, I am a writer, you know, right. it actually is a game changer, you know, like it actually changes like the way that you approach the world. So anyways, sure. Great Although I would take it one step further, which is like, I think people who go like, I am a writer often have trouble versus people who say like, I have something I have to say. Well, you've written an article about that, actually, didn't yes, you? Yes, I have. You know, like, it's it's the same. It's like your identity is is it that your identity is as a basketball player? Because what if that's your identity, but like yeah. you're too short, or you get in a car accident, and your leg gets amputated, yeah. right? Or is it like I deeply care about this sport or endeavor or you know message that I have to get out, and I'm going to within the confines of reality find the best means for expressing that passion and bringing it to fruition. Yeah, that's so funny. We just had this moment. I actually shared that article you wrote on writing on uh, Facebook. I think I like messaged you Facebook. Oh, yeah, yeah. But we went back in time and looked at that Facebook. He's like, I really like that article you wrote on writing. <laughs> Here I am. But um, but I, I think that um, just to push it a little further, I think that yeah. the, the aspect of harmonious passion construct I really like is that the idea there is that you, that the activity is well is health is in a healthy way integrated with the rest of yourself. So okay. that's more of the point that I really like sure. about that. So it's it's like it's that the writing activity I am a writer is is it makes me feel good about myself. It yes. it doesn't contradict you know, X, Y, and Z other values that I have. It's part of, you know, the, the whole complete integrated self. So in, in that sense, you know, I, I like that. But No, uh, no, that makes, yeah. that makes total sense. And I've been thinking about passion a lot and I've never heard of that concept. And like, cool. now I want to look into it. That's amazing. Check it out. There's a, there's a distinction. I can somebody to send you a, yeah. an article. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, Taylor does a great job of the show notes uh, looking at the, the, the uh, article I wrote in the Huffington Post called like the multiple passionate paths to performance. Okay. There's, like, there's the obsessively passionate path and the harmoniously passionate path. So anyway, yeah, I'd love to. No, that's that. great. Great. Um, so I, I want to be very respectful of your time. Is it okay for like a couple more minutes of, of questions? And then I want to give Taylor a chance here to okay. ask you. He's been dying to ask you some Let's questions. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Okay, Ryan. How can you use obstacles against themselves? What does that mean? Um, I mean, like Martin Luther King has been in the news a lot recently, right? And 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 some of the passive uh, passive resistance sort of things. That that's the example that I use in the book. It's how does someone who has no power 
manage to wield power or manage to wield influence or create change. This is obviously also the idea that underpins a lot of the martial arts. How do you how do you sort of use the force or size of an enemy against itself, right? Yeah. Because the idea of going head to head with things is not usually the most efficient or effective way to do things. So like when you look at uh, Martin Luther King, it's like we're going to meet physical force with soul force. And he's saying that one, because that's what he believes in. But on the on the other hand, like challenging physical force when you don't have physical force is not a viable option, right? He's not a martyr. He, although he ultimately sort of died as one, that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to create change and then experience it and benefit from it himself, like a rational human being would. Um, so what, what I talk about in the book is, is is how you learn to sort of say, okay, here's what I bring to the table. Here's what I'm up against. How can I... How can I make sure that I am challenging them where they're weak and where I am strong? That, that's sort of the idea. Um, I, I looked at. A, I think militarily, this is it, it's it's interesting. This is an idea you see militarily. You see it in the martial arts. You see it in philosophy. You see it in in uh, in political movements. It's it's a fact of life because there's not any other way to do it. Yeah, I think that was very well said. So what does this what does this uh, quote mean? Don't waste time on false constructs. Um, I think I really. By the way, from an aesthetic perspective, I love that sentence. <laughs> I, I like it too. It's I, actually like beautiful. Remember, I'm trying to remember where it is in the book. Um, I I think it's about the perspective. I think it's around when you talk about the importance of perspective. Yeah. It, well, look, it's interesting. Like the first thing we when we fa- like when something happens, right? It, it is an objective event, right? Yeah. Like. Yeah, you know, yeah. my house gets broken into, it's raining outside, uh, I get in a car accident, uh, you know, my computer won't work. These are like objective events. But what we do on top of that is then tell ourselves like what they mean or what they represent, right? Mm-hmm. It's totally unfair. It's the end of the world. I'm it's too late now. We tell ourselves these things. These are constructs that we're, they're, they're obviously adaptive constructs, but they're constructs and you could argue that they're making things worse. And so I, I try to, I, when we're talking about reality, it's, it's about seeing the event for what it is and what it, what, it, what it is clearly and not focusing so much on the interpretation that you add to it or more importantly, the interpretation, uh, to go back to Steve Jobs, that other people put on things, right? Yeah. Just, see it, just see it for what it is to you personally in that moment compared to what you need to do and let that sort of be the end of it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I just really like that. I wanted to say that sentence out loud. <laughs> always time up all that. I really like that. It's uh, weird. You, you probably experience this. Like you write a book. Oh, yeah. And since a book is like, you know, 60 plus thousand words, you don't remember all the sentences that are in it. <laughs> and that's where you actually learn that, that Emerson quote where he's like, when you see your own thoughts like reflected back to you or you're like, holy shit, like who said that? And then – it's a it's pretty weird. Well, feeling. we had that funny moment earlier where I, I said this quote. And you're like you're like yeah, really we're really well said, Scott. I was like, <laughs> I was like yeah, to be fair, you know that was I'm quoting you, brother. Anyway, I'm not sure I said that one. Okay, but. you know maybe I'll actually look. Well, yeah, I'm not sure actually now either, um, but I, I'm pretty sure. Okay, so uh, blessings and burdens are not mutually exclusive. There's another chestnut. Yeah, um, and I think the, that I actually mean, gets I, at the core. Would you agree that kind of gets at the core of Stoicism in a way? Yeah. To- Totally, totally. It's that within 
within the negativity of a given situation, there's also positive, right? The, the, the clearest being the sort of quote that underpins the book, which is that, you know, everything is an opportunity to practice virtue. Everything is a chance. So even, even if something bad happens, like even if someone you know dies, is that not a chance for you to like be supportive to other people, right? Or is that not a chance for you to be reminded of your own mortality or, or, or you a chance to, to do something nice or respect, like everything that happens, even really, really bad stuff, especially really bad stuff has, has within it the chance to do something. So it's not like, oh, how do I look at the glasses being half full? It's like, how do I, how do I fill it up with like an action or a choice after the fact is what I would say stoicism is. And that's what the obstacle is the way ultimately means, right? It's uh, the yeah. obstacle is the way to turn Some, yeah. Yeah. Turn things into an advantage. And um, it's, it's not a thing to be avoided. It's a thing. To yeah, right. Exactly. And, yeah. and by the way, I think it's interesting, like Marx is saying the impediment to action advances action. That's stoicism. That's Western philosophy. And then, you know, the, the Zen saying is the obstacle is the path. And I wanted to combine the two. I think I really like when you see totally disparate, unconnected schools of philosophy zeroing in on the same core ideas. I think that's a sort of corroboration of some kind of real undeniable wisdom. Awesome. I want to stop here and give a chance uh, for my colleague Taylor Christ to ask you some questions. In a lot of ways, this may, I may I'm going to embarrass him maybe a little bit here, but I, I feel like I'm looking at a younger version of you right here. Um, he, uh, he approached me uh, a year ago and uh, basically said, I want to learn as much from you about the field, I, you know, like whatever I can do to help out. And he's, wow. he's became, I let him, you know, I, I mean, I'm executive director of this podcast and he's just done an amazing job with all the show notes. And um, does he I, go to, does he go to Penn or no, no. Wow. Nice. He literally came, he just, um, I mean, you can you tell your story, but you came from LA just like showed up on the footstep of the positive psychology center and said for free, I'm here. Like, what can I learn from you guys? And, um, I made him my TA for my positive psychology class, the teaching assistant for the whole nice. class. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that, Ryan. Yeah. I would start outright just by saying like, you know, your, your work has had a profound effect on my philosophical operating system. And it's meant a lot to me as a creative person, which is, um, I think it's a great opportunity to have you and Scott in particular both being uh, psychologically interested creative types here. I, I figured I'd fire off a question that maybe both of you could weigh in on. Let's oh, do you, it. You're bringing me into this? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this was going to happen. The three-way thing going on. Go, go, go. <laughs> um, so I'm a huge fan of your writing for psychology today, and it's clear you've done a lot of research in the field. I was curious if there had been any theories or studies in particular that you found very helpful to you as a creative professional. Um, I mean, there's the post-traumatic growth one, which I talk about in Obstacle, which I think was really interesting. And Scott and I were talking about that one. I remember really early on, I read, um, I was reading this one about like, uh, one of the early studies about learned helplessness. And I remember, I remember reading that like a certain number of the dogs just like didn't give in to learned helplessness. So it's like, even though these things might generally be true, there's also like exceptions to the rules. I thought that was really interesting. And I, I thought, I remember the, the study I saw was like saying like, um, it, the study I, I'm trying to remember it exactly, but it was like, they did it in post, uh, post Soviet, uh, East Germany. And they were looking at, um, they were, they were like looking at pe how people adjusted to like the fall of communism and like how some people like 
thought they were screwed, and then other people saw it as this like massive opportunity. And so like I, I think that in some ways connects to the stoic idea, which is like if you can orient yourself so you see what happens to you as not being like negative, as not being universally negative, but as being sort of like temporary and alterable, this is like a this is as much a toolkit as any like actual talent or skill would be. Um, perhaps more so. It would be better to be untalented but have a good outlook in this sense than to be like highly talented but sort of depressed and constrained by how you interpret the world. I'm, I might be butchering the actual science here, so I, I apologize if so, but that, those are two that I remember standing out to me. That's awesome. I, you know, one of my great interests in psychology is just how it can be so practical and help us live a healthier, happier, and uh, more creative lives in a lot of ways. I, uh, personally, I thought that the growth mindset research from Carol Dweck has been really helpful um, as a creative person. I think it speaks to one of the main tenets of stoicism, which is just really a, a cognitive reframing of a situation. You know, you have an event. Sure. Maybe your most recent article didn't get, um, you know, accepted or applauded in such a way. Right. And growth mindsets for me, I, I kind of, I used to would have been the person who, oh no, that means I'm not talented. I, I was born without any sort of uh, ability as a writer and, uh, you know, maybe I should stop here. But right. growth mindsets, you look at this research and you see that if you can just change your perspective on the matter and see it as a learning opportunity, as a way to hone your skills, as an inevitability and really an opportunity to grow and strengthen your, your creative talents and, uh, and move on and find the success that you wanted in the world. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I think what's interesting and maybe this, like what I, what I, what I think one objection to some of the pop psychology that we see that the Stoics might have would be, yes, it's when you fail or when something bad happens, it doesn't say anything about you as a person. Right. And other than that, it's that it's an opportunity to grow I think what I like about the Stoics and what I like about the ancient is there's also the there's also the emphasis that like success doesn't say anything about you either. The fact that it did get accepted doesn't necessarily mean that it's good or the fact that you're famous or important or rich doesn't mean that you're like a good person either. That like you're spo- like um Marcus Aurelius he has this line where he says like accept it without er- without arrogance and let it go with without indifference or with indifference and like I think we can be – a lot of people can practice like this, the second half of that to like let bad things go with indifference. But can you also like accept good things without arrogance? Like That's probably the more difficult part of it as well. And it's something I certainly struggle with and like I've always been really cognizant of having been or accomplished things like early on in my life. Like that could also be a uh, – uh, a recipe for like becoming a monster basically <laughs> the goats are back oh yeah <laughs> so i have come across a lot of research recently that has emphasized the the ability of meditation to enhance our creative output and i was curious are you are you big on meditation is that something you do with some frequency uh for me i've i found that like actual meditation doesn't work but i see like exercise or like strenuous physical activity as being another way to sort of get in that like flow mindfulness state so like i like swimming and running those are like my two big ones i i walk a lot too but like i tend like i work hard in the mornings and then i stop in the afternoon and i usually like do some sort of activity and i find that like by the time i get back i i like have breakthroughs for whatever i was struggling with like earlier in the day 
That's great. I really, I think that speaks to the importance of uh, finding a ritual that works for you as a creative person. And yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny, uh, like Scott and I have said that like we kind of get anxious if we sit and do traditional meditation. You know, this, this kind of focused attention, yeah. sit. There's different kinds of meditation wander. coming out. Sure. I'm a big fan of active open-mindedness, but I'm not a big fan of return of the breath. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I did yoga once and I, I actually like fell asleep. Have you done, uh, have you done like sensory deprivation tanks? Yeah. I, I've been meaning to try that forever. I think the research is really interesting and it sounds, it sounds like a you did good that? experience. Yeah, I've, I've done it like three or four times. It's pretty cool. Like, for me, like, it was weird. It was, like, the first time in my life that I could ever remember, like, feeling and sensing, like, nothing. Mm, Like, just total nothing. Like, I didn't, like, really have hallucinations. Like, there was just, like, I was just sitting there, like, with nothing. And that was, like, that was a refreshing experience. Yeah, I've heard it's kind of a a nice cleanse. But it's it's interesting just because – the studies have found that that kind of open-minded meditation is the kind that helps you with creativity. Where mm-hmm. when you go on your default mode network, when you're when you're running, when you're exercising, when you're not thinking about the problem at hand, yeah. is when you know inspiration strikes. That's, that's kind of the the way to get at your solutions to your problems. Yeah. I, so I really pay attention that. to your daydream. This is something I'm big on. Yeah. <laughs> not like not like saying, oh no, I gotta ignore the daydreams. Gotta ignore the daydreams. Return to the breath. You know, right. but actually like uh, non-judgmentally looking at those daydreams and seeing what they could add value to. Yeah, maybe it's just sort of like letting go of the the need to like be in control of everything as well. That's true too. Yeah. They get. Um, and just to raise a conversation between uh, you know two smart guys, stoicism and psychology. Um, we were talking earlier about how basically modern psychology is proving timeless values and uh, and philosophies. Have you ever done research into Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory? Because I, I see the obstacles the way um, this whole cognitive reframing of an event as uh, falling right into that that research. Well, that's an interesting literature. That yeah. Have you what, what is it? I don't I don't know what it is. Yeah. Can, do yeah, you want to so, explain the brother and build theory? Uh, sure. Why not? We're going to assign this to the students. This is literally okay. gonna, this is going to be the most instructional. Like, I'll, I'll write this down for my homework as this well. This is going to be the most instructional like podcast ever for <clears throat> positive psychology students. Okay. Very cool. Um, it's easiest for me to understand it in in light of like the the opposite, so to speak. So when we have negative emotions, evolutionarily it's adaptive because it narrows the kinds of thoughts and actions we might take. You know, you're terrified, fight or flight. Right. There's no time in between that. And I remember you said something about your animal brain wanting to shorten the time period between appraisal. Your rooster brain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. um, Right. So it's adaptive. Uh, Negative emotions have a place, you know, when you're dealing with that kind of thing. But if you can put more of a space between the event and the appraisal, if you can stop and take this kind of a stoic exercise of saying maybe it's not a bad thing, then it opens up your ability to think of different options of, of um, more available space for you to act in and, you know, it helps you pivot and, and turn what might be a disadvantage into an advantage. It says that positive emotions place uh, adaptively is to, you know, when you're feeling happy or optimistic, you're more likely to go explore or, you know, read a new book or have uh, different options come into your mind, basically. No, that makes total sense. I would agree with that. How is it standing academically, Scott? Well, this is interesting because Fredrickson also proposed this positivity ratio, which has come under fire recently in a big way. Um, So the broad and build theory, I think, is sound in a lot of ways. 
So the specific positivity ratio sure. or the, what's called the critical ratio is not to be taken um, seriously. But the overall theory that it's important to have more positive emotions and negative emotions on average, I think, is, is getting a lot of research support. That while negative and positive emotions are good, um, it is, it is, it is, it's a balance is not necessarily the key, but to actually have like uh, more positive or negative because the positive does broaden your outlooks and options. No, that makes total yeah. sense. Yeah. I mean, I like what you're talking about, about, you know, putting the space in between your the event and then your assessment of it. Although like we also have to be realistic, right? Like uh, I don't think the Stokes would argue like if you fall and break your arm, you should be like, oh, it doesn't hurt right now because like right. I'm going to make good from this or whatever. The, the, it's like you're going to – one, you're going to have all your biological reactions and all the psychological ones that you can't – you know, all, all the cognitive biases that you can't necessarily sort of prevent from happening. But it's like before you make a decision or take an action – so it's like you fall, you break your arm, it hurts. That part you can't change. That's not in your control. But you can decide if you're now going to feel sorry for yourself for the next, you know, two months as you recover or if you're going to, if you're going to, you know, whine all the time or if you're going to not take care of yourself or you're going to, you know, take your mood out on like a spouse or your family or whatever. Like I think, I think we also want to, we want to distinguish between like what are the sort of immediate biological reactions we don't control and how can we focus on the sort of, okay, and this is what it means, which is definitely in our control. You want to ask like two more questions? Um, more sure, more? yeah, I'd love to. I'm sure you could ask, I'm sure you could ask in a thousand, yeah. but yeah, just, uh, let, you know, just give another five, five minutes, I'd say. Okay, yeah. right on. Um, I was going to ask if you have some truly high return on investment habit or practice that you engage in that you think is especially great for your creative output. Uh, well, I, the two would be reading, I think, is one of the most high sort of return on investment activities that there are, period. Um, and I think if you look at any real successful person, you're going to find this, unless there was some sort of event in their childhood or upbringing that made, like, reading difficult. Um, like, I mean, there's – Dr. Drew introduces me to stoicism at 19 years old, and that <laughs> totally changes the course of my life, not just, like – career-wise, but it also helps me with like literally every difficult situation that I face from that point forward. And I've only been dealing with the ROI for like less than 10 years, right? So like I think I think with books, you see this massive ROI. I, I think the same with exercise, having some sort of separate activity that you do that where it's like there's no such thing as like it's very rare that you would have a bad day exercising, right? Because whether it's going to be good or not is, is mostly in your control outside of injury, right? So it's like you decide that you're going to go to the gym and do X, Y, and Z. It's in your control to be able to go do X, Y, and Z. And it's only a matter of commitment to that idea that would prevent you. And so it's like for me, it's like a constant win that you're like racking up, a constant piece of sort of positive momentum. And so – like I, I feel like I've done – the intro to this book came to me while I was on a run and so did lots of the other sentences that you were talking about here, right? Like yeah. that, that's been one of the best things I've done ever creatively. So those would be two. 
Very cool. Really appreciate that. As I, I think uh, the audience will, just as you know, all of us uh, aspiring to be creative types out there, it's yeah. nice to have some, I, I, some actionable. I just want to interject something real quick. You know, you must have been a really good journalist at freshman year to get invited to the summit. I mean, how did you get invited to that? Well, it was. It's not a great school, but uh, <laughs> there and there weren't many people in the newspaper staff. But yeah, I don't know. It randomly fell in my lap. Like uh, they were. They. It was. It was hilarious. Trojan condoms had paid for Dr. Drew to speak at an event that like 10 college journalists were invited to. And like, because it was near LA, I was like the one that got invited. So it was just this like crazy lucky thing that I, I obviously jumped on. Cool. So Ryan probably has another book he has to write. <laughs> I don't want to take his time away. Uh, I think it's it's just so much fun and actually really helpful to uh, have this tool in your toolkit, and that's uh, it's based on an article you'd written, contemptuous expressions. I think, yeah. I think it'd be great if you wouldn't mind just sharing that idea with the audience because I, I, I think it's the awesomest. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a stoic idea as well and you see it in a lot of the exercises where they're, I almost mentioned earlier, where they're like going through and like cataloging like what things are in a very like objective session, uh, uh, objective sense. Like uh, Marcus will say like sex is like uh, a bit of rubbing and then like a white fluid. Like he says this in the meditations and like, Obviously, sex is more than that, but it's also literally all that it is, right? And he's 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 talking about like you know what is like a sumptuous feast? Like if you think about it in a weird like cynical way, it's like why are there a bunch of like dead cooked animals like on your table? Like isn't this like weird and gross? And he's like thinking about he's thinking about the the sort of luxury and riches that he's given as this most powerful man in the world. And you see Epictetus do it too. He's like. You know, he's like he's talking about like what it's like to sort of envision like a famous or important person naked. Like he they're just trying to get you to strip thick like Marcus says, like strip things of the legend which encrusts them. Like over over time, we've like added all this meaning, wrong meaning towards material items often or certain experiences or certain like, you know, bits of status. And they're they're not saying that the things are worthless. They're just trying to counterbalance them with like an objective take. Like, uh, I, like I, here's one that I came up with that I think is interesting. It's hilarious to me that like when Obama leaves office, right? Right now he's the most powerful man in the world. He can do whatever he wants essentially. When he leaves office, he's like legally and financially obligated almost to like write a, another crappy memoir and then travel on the obnoxious media circuit to like promote this book. Right. Like all he wants to do is like go back to regular life. But instead, he's going to have to spend the next like three months of his life dealing with like editors and a publisher. He's going to have to deal with the same the same crap that Scott and I have to put up with as significantly less important authors. And like, so so to me, it's just a reminder that like even a great position comes with its own still comes with like, you know, um, its own reminder. I think Malcolm Gladwell was talking about once that like. Uh, airport security is like the great equalizer. Like it doesn't matter who you are, you still have to go through like the TSA, right? Although if you fly private, you really don't, as I as I've seen a few times. But like the point is, it ever it's about reminding yourself of like who you actually are and what the constraints of reality are and life are. And like I don't I don't know if the Stokes actually use the word contemptuous exercise, but to me it's just it's like sometimes you can throw a little contempt at something to balance out the like adulation that people are projecting onto it. 
Yeah, this was a really great interview, Ryan, and I uh, so I, think, I think this might have been one of our best yeah, interviews yeah, we've done. Fine, man. Um, so thank you so much for your time today, and I look forward to uh, what are, what's the, like your next project. I'm working on a new book uh, now, and then um, just I've got like I, I represent other authors for like marketing and public relations and stuff. Are we allowed to know? Are we allowed to know what the book is about, or would you? I hate talking about projects that are uh, still okay. in the hopper. So well, maybe we can get Sounds you back good. on it. You know, yes, I would love that. That'd be amazing. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much, Ryan. Go Ryan. Thank you guys for having me. This was really cool. And, and, and Taylor, email me anytime if you have questions or whatever. You're a total sweetheart. I, I can't say how much I appreciate that. <laughs> I know I'm a sweetheart. <laughs> <laughs> he calls me a sweetheart too. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know about that, but. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman. I hope you found this episode just as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you'd like to read the show notes for this episode or hear past episodes, you can go to thepsychologypodcast.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.